This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we've talked about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. So Sands & Associates has uh, put out what, for the fifth time, fifth year in a row, the BC Consumer Debt Study. And Blair, we're going to talk about uh, this study and the trends that, that this study sort of uncovered. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. Yeah. So th- this year, Elaine, we, t- we took a different focus on the study. So each year we, we survey everybody that reaches out to us for help. Um, and it's over a thousand people that we get responses for. So from this year, it was 1,300 people gave us in-depth responses about their financial situation. Which is a big sample. Oh, yeah. It, it's greater than the volume of, you know, the number of people that go into bankruptcy or do a proposal each month in BC is just over half of that amount. So it's almost two months worth of clients um, in BC who are having trouble with their debt. So it's really good data. And what we focused on this year was what's the non-financial impact of debt? What's the physical toll? What's the emotional toll, the spiritual toll? What is it really like to be in debt? Because we haven't seen that in a lot of the published research. It seems to really stick to the numbers, but behind every number, there's a story, there's a person, there's a family. Yeah, which is which is interesting. But yeah, I agree. So uh, before we get into the real guts of it, uh, who can you sort of break down who the people are that you talk to in the survey? Mm-hmm. Well, they broke they broke down to about half female, so it was uh, roughly fifty five percent to forty five percent in terms of marital status. Uh, about forty percent were married, uh, about a quarter were divorced and separated, and about a quarter single. Uh, the balance being either in a relationship or, or widowed, um, and the age range was quite wide. So it was as as young as eighteen years and as old as seventy five plus. So a very wide cross section. So I think that's really interesting. As Especially the the fact that you had basically half male and half female respondents. Mm -hmm. So if you're sitting there thinking nobody else has ever experienced what I'm experiencing, know right now that that's just not true. Oh, absolutely. And there is even a difference between men and women. And we find that men tend to wait more before they actually come in and and ask for help, where women, more quickly, it seems, they will seek help with their financial issues. And we've seen that over years. Men can sometimes wait more than two years to get help, women a lot less. Okay, interesting. Mm -hmm. So the real cost of debt, uh, it's more than just the numbers, as you said. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, some of the the really key things that jumped out to me, you know, one was when we asked people, you know, how often are you worrying about your debt? Because when people come in to see us at Sands and Associates, um, you know, you can see it on their face, exactly the impact that this is having, you know, that the deep lines in their face, the, the hunched, sho- hunched shoulders, um, just, you know, really feeling like they're beaten down. And what we found is 63%, so nearly two thirds of people said the worry was constant. So, and that's enormous, mm-hmm. a constant worry. And I can understand that it would be, yeah. completely understand that it would be. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, that would definitely take a toll on you. Oh yeah, and even if you if you dive deeper, we said okay, if it's not constant, you're not thinking about it all the all the time. Well, what about a few times a day or daily? And it's upwards of ninety percent of people when they find themselves in debt, they're thinking about their debt daily. So at least every day it pops into their mind. They don't know what to do and they feel depressed about it. And and so not only are people suffering as a result of that, but that worry is getting in the way of the other things, the other parts of their lives that they. Uh, should be thinking about or or working on, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like their jobs or their kids or 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 whatever consumes us. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's always a, a spillover effect. You know, when we see clients walk into into our office, you know, it's quite often solving the money problem is you know just one piece of you know one part of a battle that this person is is fighting overall. And as soon as you can solve the money problem, quite often the other challenges in their life, whether it's relationships or kids or things like that, they suddenly become a lot more manageable. Sure. Uh, let's talk about the uh, kind of debt that people suffer or, or we're holding on to, and and yeah, what kind of what kind of debt it was mm-hmm. or is, and then what kind of dollar amounts? Yeah, so for for the most part, when we're speaking with with folks when they're concerned about their debt, it's typically not mortgages or or not car loans because you know each of those situations, you know, if you've got a mortgage that's too high, the, the solution typically is you have to consider sell, selling the house. If you're you know got a house, car loan that that's too high, um, you know, you consider get, getting out of the car loan. What we're talking about is things like. More, sorry, things like MasterCard, Visa, lines of credit, student lines or student loans, really all of your non-secured debt. Non-secured debt. Yes. And what about the, what, what's a secured debt then? Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Is that something, did that get factored into? Well, so secured means that if you don't pay the debt, someone's going to come and take something from you. So the right. most common ones are a mortgage or a car loan. Anything else that if you don't pay it, they can't come and take something from you. By default, that's an unsecured debt. Okay. So essentially outside of mortgage and car loans, most other debts, you know, with some rare exceptions, they are unsecured debts. Okay. So uh, what did what did you find that people were doing as a result of their of having amassed this debt mm-hmm. without actually taking good action by phoning you guys? Uh, wh- what were people doing? What were their automatic responses? Well, quite quite often it's just a case of you know ignore the problem, right? You you know you've got a debt and you know that the the bills are coming in each month, but you're still able to make the minimum payments. So we found the, the highest proportion of people, they actually owed between twenty five dollars and $50,000 of non-mortgage, non-car loan, so unsecured debt before they reached out for help. That's a lot. It is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is a lot of money. No wonder it was a constant worry for folks. Yeah, if you think about, you know, the average income in the province is, you know, somewhere between 2000 and $3,500 after taxes, you know, the interest alone on debts like that is going to eat up a big portion of that income. And that's not getting you out of debt at all. That's just you treading water, making your minimum payments. So it was interesting when we asked people, you know, what was the key thing that made you reach out for help with your debts? And the most common response was it was, I realized I was only making the minimum payments and it was wasn't getting me ahead. I right. looked at the statements and each month the debt wasn't going down and I knew I couldn't pay more. Yeah. And it's almost laughable, the minimum payments that some of these uh, banking institutions give us mm-hmm. on our credit card statement. Yeah. You know, you think you're making uh, a sort of a, uh, a dig into it, but 
you're not even close. Like their mm-hmm. minimum should be. I mean, it just it's crazy, right? Oh yeah, it's, it's if you don't laugh, you cry. Um, sometimes I've had people in my office, and you know, we, we look at their statements, and I've seen you know seventy years to pay off this debt, and the person is seventy years years old sitting across the table from me. I've seen one hundred and fifty years, two hundred years. At some point, they just stop stop counting, and they say, you know, you you probably should get some help at that point. Right. I, I wish they'd say that. You know, if it gets over a hundred years to pay it off, it probably should say, hey, get some advice about your debt, <sighs> rather than just keep making this payment for the next hundred years. Well, it's ridiculous, right? That 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 would even be a suggestion. Yeah, it's just nuts. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and you know, it's the banks didn't go out of their way to to try to do this disclosure. This is something that essentially the government, as part of you know their financial literacy strategy, a number of years ago, said, okay, banks, you need to disclose a little bit more about the true cost of credit. So now what we have is this disclosure of, hey, if you only make the minimum payments, it's going to take you a very long time. And that's been a positive step of getting people to actually see the impact and see why they need to turn things around. Sure. Okay. That's a good, that's a good way to look at it. I was looking at it. <laughs> it's not a very good thing, but you're right. You're totally right. It is. Um, one of the other, one of the pieces that I found interesting was almost 28% of the overall people who participated uh, said, and you mentioned this earlier, suffered from diagnosed depression. Mm-hmm. Diagnosed depression. Yeah. So that's so that then you're into that category of of medication and mm-hmm. and very, very serious. Yeah. And this was something we wanted to dig into because, you know, when you ask people, how do they feel about their debts? You know, many people say that, that they feel depressed. And, you know, the overall stat in our survey was upwards of 70% of people said, oh, yeah, we felt some depression. But it was more than a quarter, as you mentioned, Elaine, had diagnosed depression. So, you know, under the care of a physician, perhaps medication or therapies or things like that. So a huge proportion of folks struggling with their debt and then now also struggling with some mental illness and some other challenges that can just make it tougher to, to face every day. Yeah, and the impact that that has on on the people around you is enormous. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the um, the highest uh, in the in the uh, in the results of the study. Uh, we're amongst the youth generation. More than twenty percent of people who participated in the survey, age thirty or younger, were experiencing this kind of response. So financial difficulties, feeling awful about them. Well, and it, it even gets worse, Elaine, because that, that 20%, so, you know, the, the depression metric is one, and, that, and that's terrible, but we actually wanted to go a little bit further, and we partnered with a clinical um, counselor to make sure that we asked sensitive questions in a sensitive way, um, but it's greater than 20% of um, people under 30 are actually suicidal mm-hmm. because of their debt. So they contemplated that they had feelings of suicide, and they disclosed that to us in our survey. There was a big proportion of folks who said, hey, I prefer not to say, so certainly more folks had the feeling then disclosed it. But, you know, one in five people under 30 who are in debt are considering very drastic solutions because they just don't see hope. And you're right about the fact that they even voice that because the majority of people wouldn't even say those words for fear of more shame or blame or concern mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So that's significant. And this is this is younger folks. This is mm-hmm. the, what you call the youth generation. So 30 or younger not only in significant debt, but uh, but really contemplating some serious action as a result. Yeah, like we had some quotes from some of our, our clients, you know, who wrote in extra on the survey. And, you know, one of them was telling, telling us a bit of a story um, about, you know, she was ready to cross the street and she calculated in her mind what her life insurance proceeds would be and said, if I step out into this street, gee, is the world better off? My debt gets paid off and now I don't have to deal with this anymore. 
So you can you can just imagine if you're making that type of a calculation. Yeah, that's uh, that's very very serious. What else did the survey find, Blair? What other kinds of things did you guys were you surprised at finding out? Well, in, in terms of things that, that didn't surprise us, you know, we thought that debt had a very, you know, physical, spiritual, emotional impact. And 97% of people said that that's absolutely true, that, you know, there's sadness, there's discouragement, there's fear, there's panic, anxiety. Essentially, it, it's a laundry list of physical ailments that you think people would experience. Almost to a rule, everyone is impacted by being in debt. I think what did surprise me in, 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 the fi- in the final analysis was that our senior citizen demographic, they were a little more optimistic in terms of not being as depressed, but their debt situation was actually the worst out of all the demographics we looked at. So, and, and that demographic is, what, what are the numbers? Uh, 55 plus. 55 plus two, and you said 75 yeah, is the top Yeah, 75 plus, yeah. Wow, that's significant. It, fascinating, fascinating results. This was the BC Consumer Debt Study that uh, Sands & Associates uh, uh, conducted. This is the fifth year in a row that they've done. If you think that uh, that you fall into one of these categories, or uh, you could benefit from some counseling or some help uh, with your debt situation, sands-trustee.com is the website. Or you can give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, to book a free consultation. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. With us right now is Shannon, uh, and uh, it's a very special uh, piece that we're going to share with you with Shannon, her story. Uh, she was uh, able to successfully achieve a financial fresh fresh start uh, going through bankruptcy. Uh, Shannon, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really happy to just share my story and hopefully, you know, there's somebody out there who's listening who who can see a little bit of of themselves and and just hear my story today and just make a change and and go for it. That's what I want to do is just help somebody out there. Oh, that, that's great, Jen. And again, we thank you for being courageous to do so. And I, I'm sure yeah. folks folks that are listening, um, you know, if it's not their situation, it's someone in their life is, is facing a debt challenge and any insight is going to be helpful. Exactly. Uh, so I wonder just from a background point of view, can you tell us about the situation that led to you having to file a personal bankruptcy? Sure. It was actually a specific um, series of events that led to, to kind of a, a buildup of debt quickly in my life. Um, I... I, I was 27. I had um, I had a divorce that started to kind of build up. Um, I kind of had to start from scratch, literally from scratch. So you know, I had to head out on my own, buy everything that I needed. Um, it was followed about eight months later by a major health crisis. Mm. I had organ failure, needed to have a transplant, wow. and um, and I was also self-employed at the time. So. You don't think at 27 it's going to happen to you, and that's a big thing. I was self-employed, and I didn't have insurance. So I ended up being um, going through a major health crisis, living on my credit line. I didn't want to reach out for help, and I had a lot of people offer help, but instead I I lived on a credit line for – you know, the pre-sickness and and then the the recovery. So it was about about a year that I – because I was self-employed, didn't have health insurance, I – Built debt, debt built up for about, you know, a few months before my surgery, and then afterwards, I also, you know, didn't work for about 
almost a good year. So that was all on a credit line. And um, so, so Shannon, you, you were obviously quite ill and, you know, medical care is one of the, the great parts of living in Canada. But it sounds like without well, without this yeah. credit line, you would have had probably zero income coming in if you were self-employed without disability. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that coupled with the divorce that happened just before where I had to literally start from, you know, buying forks, knives, bedding. I had to build everything, um, you know, build up furniture, furnishings. Um, I had to restart my life. So that and followed eight, seven months later by the the illness. Uh, it just, it was a very quick series of events that built debt up very quickly. Um, uh, so it was, it kind of all snowballed and I was doing well financially. So I'm like, no problem. It'll, it'll be very, it'll be building up quickly, but I, I got this. I can do this. Like you just figure you'll get back to well. work. You'll clear the debt eventually. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, I, I made good money. So I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. I was selling real estate at the time. I was not worried at all. And mm-hmm. I'd always done well for myself. I had perfect credit, R1 credit. Um, I was making good money and you know, I, I, I wasn't worried. I wasn't yeah. worried. But what happened is, there was another hit that came, which was the the recession. So mm-hmm. real estate recession, things kind of hit there as well, and nobody was buying houses. So this was a few years ago, but um, that was the final kick. And I, you know, I was I got my life back, I got my house back, but I literally could not. My my career was ending. Like there was. We, we nobody was purchasing homes. We there was nothing I could do. It was just the my career was ending, um, and I was in a. Uh, I wasn't living here. I was living in a different town at the time, and it was literally um, my career was basically ending, and there was not much I could do about it. So I I tried for about two years to get out of that hole, and I did ev- literally everything I could. I was working. I was delivering phone books. I was doing little jobs on the side. I was doing absolutely everything I could think of to make my mortgage payments. I had real estate investments. I had two homes. I had um, payments. I was doing everything I could think of to get out of this hole. I was doing everything and it was starting to show up in my health. And this is where I really want to reach out to those people who are in that hole right now. I want you to listen to me. You know that that financial stress, it affects your health. It was affecting my health to the point where it was showing up in my blood work. My, my, my health was starting to decline very rapidly. So it was affecting my health to, to the point where my doctors were getting concerned. And, and I, you know, I was literally not, physically capable of working to the extent that I needed to, to pay my bills. Um, and I, I just was like, what do I do? I was, I, I was losing sleep at night and I tried for two years to get out of that hole. Um, and then, and, and then Shannon, how long did it, what was the period of time when you, when you realized that you weren't, you, this was it, you were not going to yeah. be able to get yourself out of that. Two years. It was two, two years. years. Two years from when it started snowballing. And I'm like, no, I got this. And, I, you know, I was proactive from the start. I I still had been, I was very proactive. I'd let the creditors know what was happening. I returned a lease voluntarily when I'm like, okay, i got to start unloading stuff. I've got to lower my debt load. And I, um, I felt sick about the idea of 
bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. This is going to, you know, a lot of people are going to understand that the quitting factor. But when it comes to that point where you, your health, and for me, it was literally getting to the point where, you know, I've been given the gift of life. I did not want to put that at risk. That was, that was it. But you know, when your life, when your health is at risk, you've really got to, and it's, you know, it comes down to your pride. A lot of people can relate to that. You don't want to quit. Mm-hmm. You don't want to quit. You don't want to give up. You don't want to feel like that. It was, it's ego. It really comes down to, to that. But I finally went, I reached out and I met with somebody and, you know, you don't want to feel like a quitter, but there are these, these systems are, are here for a reason. And I finally right. reached out and when I finally did, I I understood that there's these systems are there for us for a reason. And when I finally reached out and met with a trustee, I just it all came off my shoulders. It was it was so easy. And I understood I finally understood the process and they literally they took over and they did everything. And you know, I was very proactive. And I didn't have, you know, the creditors chasing me. I was very proactive, but I understand how hard it is to get to that point. But um, at this point, when once they did take over, I never had another. The, it all goes to them. Right. Nobody can legally call you after that. So that's what I really want people to understand is it's done. The second you reach out to somebody and you have a trustee, they legally cannot call you. People yeah, cannot call you. You're you're saying things so, so perfectly. Um, I just yeah. To, yeah, just to put a, a fine point this, on it. And as as you mentioned, you know, this is the law, right? You know, the, the government legal. the government yeah. created this law, and the actual wording for it is someone that's been honest but unfortunate. And the story that you you've recalled recounted to us here that that's you, right? You know, you yeah. you were honest the whole time. You had a series of unfortunate events, and isn't it great that Parliament created this law to get us, you know, a fresh start to get you back on track? It's a law, yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, what I've learned from this is that I i mean, you do go through a process. You have to, you know, you got to do some, there is a process to it. Um, what I've learned from it, and I kind of did this anyways, but what I've learned is I've now, I, I have had a fresh start. Um, I've sold my, my homes, everything was sold. Um, and there's a whole process with that. I'm not going to get into it, but I now do everything. You know, I base everything on cash. That's my choice. However, I do want everybody to know that I'm two years post bankruptcy. I own a home. I have a mortgage. I have a credit card. I am wow. back to R1 credit. Mm-hmm. I just did a, a Equifax. I pulled my credit. I'm back in the 700s. Wow. So I have a credit card from a legit credit card. I have a mortgage. I am back up there. Like there's yep. things you can do to rebuild your credit very quickly. There's little tricks you can do. You just need to be educated, proactive, and you can get there. You just need to reach out and do that. Um, and, and Shannon, know, that, that's just great insight because yes. to a person, everyone that comes in the door, they're so worried about their credit You're rating. Scared. And, I you know, it. off the top, they think bankruptcy takes seven years, which it doesn't. It, does. it, it takes, I you know, know, nine months or 21 months. And most people rebuild their credit two or three years after. So you're exactly proving, um, you know, the, the day-to-day reality, but most people have a conception that it's going to be so much worse and so much, you know, with a legacy yeah. of impact than is actually the case. And this is why I want to be on the radio today and reach out to everybody out there whose spouses or whose friends, if you know somebody, just explain what you're hearing today. It's not like that anymore. There's things you can do. You just need to make the call 
go have a meeting, learn about it, educate yourself. It's very different. You just need to just, there's a couple points I want to make. You're not being a quitter. There's, there's, there's a reason they have this process. Things happen in life. And what I want to say, there's systems in place for a reason. We are human. We make mistakes. The thing is, just learn from it. Don't do this again. Things ha- it, as long as you can learn through this process and don't repeat it, it's okay. You can make a mistake. We don't all, because you've gone bankrupt. It does not mean that you're a huge spendaholic spender. Maybe you were. Maybe you went through a phase. It's still okay. You're human. We all make mistakes. Maybe you've had what happened to me, and you just had a snowball of events. It happens. But there's this process called bankruptcy for a reason. And, you know, credit cards, they make a lot of interest. They make a lot of money. This that this is why we can afford to go through a process called bankruptcy. This is why that system is in place. The government's done it for a reason to help people get a fresh start. And this is why I wanted to do this today is really to help explain my experience through it so people can understand how it truly works from my personal experience. I two years out and I'm a fresh start and I'm back in the real estate. I got a home, got a credit card. I run a business. It's successful. And I could get a loan if I wanted to, but I never know when my health is going to go sideways. So I've chosen to build it on cash. So I'm never in that situation again because that really sucked. But um, (laughs) I just, I really hope that somebody out there can hear this story today. That stress, I mean, I've gone through the dying process and it was awful, but financial stress was actually worse than what I experienced like going through the dying process. Financial stress was worse. Shannon, your story. Horrendous. Shannon, your story is so great, and I know that it's resonating with folks that are listening. I hope so. Uh, I really hope so. Yeah, no, you've done a, you've done a great job. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I just want to add too, uh, if if you're hearing Shannon's story, it's resonating with you. Sands-trustee.com is the website to check out more, to book uh, yourself an appointment for a free consultation, or you can also call 1-800-661-3030. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We're talking with Stephanie Muncy, who's a chartered professional accountant working with Sands & Associates as an estate manager. She has over six years of insolvency and accounting experience and is based on, the, on Vancouver Island at the offices of Sands & Associates there. Stephanie, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Well, thank you, Elaine. I'm happy to be here. And I know we're talking about self-employment issues. Blair says this is something that you can speak well about. And uh, and it's great because in this business, in this radio business, uh, there's a lot of self-employed people. So this is really, really good information. And uh, I have a feeling today, just in the tech sector alone, uh, there's more and more people who are self-employed or contract players versus full-time employees, like in the old days yeah the sharing economy you know the uber that's and, right and things like that the side hustle yeah i think there'd be more and more of people who really have to know this information about their requirements you know to, to keep out of trouble essentially with the government 
So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so more and more we're seeing lots of self-employed people um, and just more information out there that there is available to them, the better they can keep their finances on track and help grow their business. Stephanie, what do you think or what have you found is sort of the, the most common reason that self-employed folks get into financial difficulties? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason people can get into financial difficulties can arise from a number of different avenues. Probably the most common ones that I see uh, is just not tracking and not not keeping records of their expenses and how much they're making, where they don't realize until it's too late that they've, they've gotten themselves into a bit of trouble. Um, so that's a really big one. And another one that people often overlook is that things are cyclical. Um, so not having a saving, not having a a contingency fund and a bit of savings aside for the low periods um, can cause them undue expenses like interest or borrowing costs if they have to cover expenses when they're not earning as much as they were previously. Okay. Sorry. So this is someone, you know, like a landscaper, for example, obviously in in the winter, their business goes, you know, quite quiet. So they would have to forecast for for those lean months. Is that what you mean, Stephanie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So contractors um, that's or and, and landscapers, that's a, a great example. We're in the springtime and the summer. They get a lot more business than in the winter. Uh, but you also get people like realtors um, where it goes, you never... You can't predict when your your payday is going to be. So when you do get that payday, just putting a little bit aside um, so you can cover the months until you get another contract and they're able to get more income. So what are the kinds of things that we need to pay attention to as self-employed workers uh, that we need to track and make sure we track? Um, I think one of the most important things is just knowing how much money you're taking in, so tallying that up on a regular basis, as well as keeping receipts and records of all of your expenses. So a lot of times self-employed people, they're so busy and so passionate about their business that they don't necessarily update their books. So if you make a point of setting a date every single month where you're going to go through, you're going to review your your progress, you're going to update yourself on all the revenue you've taken home, update all the expenses you had just so you can know where you're standing at that particular time. Now, when it comes to taxes, I'm still going to have to pay tax on that money that I'm getting. What's the best amount to put aside if I haven't you know, if I haven't done this before or I don't know what the percentage is, what is that percentage? Mm-hmm. Um, so taxes are, are complicated, and it depends on how much you make. How much you make. So there's there's two things that you can do. Um, CRA, so Canada Revenue Agency, actually has a great online resource um, where if you go onto their website or even if you type it into Google, the CRA online payroll calculator. Uh, if you plug in how much you've you've made in that month, it'll let you know exactly what you'd owe for your federal and your provincial taxes, as well as what you should be putting aside for your your CPP your Canada Pension Plan contribution. So that's a good way to know, um, have a fairly accurate estimate of what you'd owe at the end of the year. Um, but a lot of people who make, I'd say, between thirty dollars and $50,000, if you just set aside roughly 17% of your net income, usually that's pretty close to saving enough by the time you hit, hit tax time and have to, to make sure you make those payments to the government. Okay, so we've put aside enough money for our taxes at 17%. Now, you talked about savings and the importance of savings. What do you look at there? How much money should we be putting aside or a percentage? Mm-hmm. I think that that really depends on what type of business you're in. 
Um, as far as saving for personal expenses and stuff like that, we recommend for individuals that they have enough to live for three months if something should happen. Um, if it's something like a realtor where maybe you have two big sales e- sales a year, you should maybe average that out over the entire year on what you need to cover your desk fees and stuff like that throughout the rest of the year. Uh, things like contractors and other other types of businesses like that um, just need to make an assessment of what their, their ongoing costs are being or any contract costs that they have to pay uh, and make a judgment based on, on their past experience in the business. And, and Stephanie, we, we talked about, you know, how it's really important for self-employed folks to, to put away their tax remittances, you know, ideally keep it in a separate account. Um, I'm wondering, um, you know, if, if someone hasn't planned um, and suddenly they see that there's some money in another account they've saved for taxes, I could see that money sometimes getting used in, in operations. Ha, have you seen that with, with the client base? And what type of difficulties does that does that cause if you've got this money that's set aside and then sometime, somehow an emergency happens and then the tax money is not there? What's the implication of that for the individual. Mm-hmm, absolutely, Blair. Yeah, that does happen a lot where they're they're planning, they're being proactive, they're putting away that money for taxes, and then something comes up where they need to pay a supplier and they or they need to do something else that keeps the business running. Otherwise, the business would just stop. Um, so they do have to dip into that emergency fund. So essentially, when you don't pay your taxes on time to Canada Revenue Agency, you get stuck with a lot of additional interest and penalties. Um, so best case scenario, you needed that money, you had to take it to get the business running, so you need to figure out how to pay that extra cost um, on the taxes that would be late to be paid. Um, but a lot of times, not having that savings and having to dip into your tax fund, that's when things can snowball out of control, and you just have so much trouble catching up with those interests interest payments that you hadn't accounted for initially. Now, what about a bookkeeper? A bookkeeper sounds like it might solve a lot of those problems, but how? what about your clients? Have you seen that they've availed themselves of that, or is that just something that's a bit out of reach? Mm-hmm. I, I have a number of clients that have said wonderful things to say about as soon as they got a bookkeeper, everything turned around, everything got a lot better, um, whereas others prefer to, to watch um watch their income themselves. So it really depends on how comfortable they are with tracking their finances. Um, I feel in construct, or especially in the construction business and people who work on contract, um, they know a lot of other people that are self-employed in a similar business. And that's oftentimes when people find really great bookkeepers, it's because someone else that's doing the same type of work has someone that's been doing that knows what they're doing, knows the business, and help has helped them keep on track. So that's a great resource to find to find a bookkeeper that works for them. Essentially, at the end of the day, if you know you're not going to be tallying up your expenses and your revenue and tracking it on a regular basis, having that bookkeeper is going to keep you accountable and it's going to keep you attuned to how your business is doing so you can make the proper decisions to, to keep your business growing and successful. Right. And I guess, Stephanie, what a bookkeeper also allows you to do is to focus on your business business, right? Not focus on being an accountant and being compliant with Canada Revenue and knowing all of these things, which maybe you're not an expert in, allows you, you know, to, to be the best, whatever it is that you are self-employed, the best landscaper, realtor, plumber, whatever, and get someone else to worry about the, you know, the technical things. 
Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Is the reason you're self-employed is because you're very passionate about what you do. So by getting a bookkeeper, that frees up your time to focus on what you are really good at. That's a great point, Blair. Thank you, Stephanie. That's great information for self-employed folks on how, uh, that might find themselves getting into financial difficulties or in there and need to get out. Stephanie Muncie, you can uh, uh, find her very easily at sands-trustee.com. She's a CPA and works with Sands and Associates as an estate manager. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com. On the line with us right now is Dr. Leanne Davies. Uh, Leanne is the founder and CEO of Agenomics. She has a PhD in aging, health, and well-being, and is the co-author of a book called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. Uh, Leanne, as we're going to find out, is pretty passionate about sharing her insights on population, professionals, philanthropists, and the general public and what and how we can prepare and respect the changes that are coming as we age. Leanne, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Elaine. Thank you very much for including me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And it's it's Blair here. Um, I wonder if you can just start by explaining to us what is the wealth effect? I know it's something you've, you've researched, you've written on quite extensively. So for our listeners, can you give us a sense of the wealth effect, what you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, hi, Blair. It's great to speak to you again, and I'd love to talk about the wealth effect and certainly how it's viewed with an aging population. So the wealth effect really is an existing theory. It's not something new that's happened just with the increase of our house prices in some areas in Canada. Um, but what's different this time with the wealth effect, uh, where people start to feel that they have uh, a lot more money than they really have in their bank accounts, for example, because of the increase in, in the house prices, What's really different this time is this easy access to credit Mm -hmm. and consumers looking at using the income that they're um, able to get through their house because they're going and getting loans against their house um, rather than using the income from their regular working stream uh, and really starting to feel that they have a lot more money available to them. And of course, that results in, in consumption that we wouldn't normally see in the population. So when I, I'm seeing these, you know, big bank ads that say you're richer than you think, um, I always, you know, turn, kind of furrow my brow a little bit saying the clients that I see that, you know, they're definitely not richer than they think. And you're saying, Leanne, there, there's actually um, a whole, you know, phenomenon of that of people thinking that there's more wealth than actually exists. Yeah, to some degree. So does the wealth exist or not? Well, it exists on paper, right? When we see people's houses increasing so substantially uh, in value, at least what's on paper, and people look at that and say, well, I couldn't make that type of money when I'm working. Of course, I'm becoming much wealthier because I own that particular type of real estate. And then we see the additional effect of that, which is they buy more and more real estate uh, and they're taking on more and more risk because of that easy access to credit. So the wealth effect is creating a behavior in these individuals that we wouldn't normally have seen. 
Oh, that that's really interesting, Leanne. And I, I'm wondering, you know, in, in my client base, what I've seen is, you know, people using their their house kind of as an ATM, you know, an automated bank machine, so to speak. Uh, whereas, you know, as the house goes up in value, and they might have bought it, you know, for a very low price 20 years ago, 20 years later, they actually don't have much equity because they've continually pulled out the, you know, the equity and lines of credit and things like that. Is is that a phenomenon that's, you know, kind of driven by this wealth effect? Absolutely. And certainly the ATM um, comparison to a house, we see quite a bit with these lines of credit that people are receiving. And what we are also seeing is the behavior where people used to be afraid of debt. So we had what was called the fear of debt. And now we have what's referred to commonly as the fear of missing out. Hmm. So people are making decisions that they're afraid that if they don't buy it now, they're not going to be able to buy it later. So a marketing ploy that people used to do to create this consumer response, you know, go buy uh, the new car, go buy the new phone. We're seeing it now with big, big ticket items like real estate. That's interesting. One of the things that when you mentioned about um, our attitude towards debt, Leanne, I remember hearing a, it was a documentary about uh, how we how we perceive debt today versus how we did hundreds of years ago. I mean, there used to be a thing called the debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. If you were in debt and you couldn't pay your money that was owed, you were in the slammer. And that's just not the case anymore. Sure. And there is a stigma to debt as well. And we don't have that anymore. Um, Taking on debt is seen as a a rational way to leverage this opportunity where um, right now the the risk of this, the access to the credit, the low interest rates makes it a very logical response. So, So for those people who are savers, who aren't taking on debt, who aren't, you know, taking advantage of these low rates, they're really seen as not rational. It's an opportunity. So this whole behavior, this whole idea of the debtor no longer exists. That term we wouldn't really see. We see people going after opportunities and and right now benefiting hugely from them. You also talk a great deal about gray debt. What's gray debt and how does it relate to the wealth, the effect, the wealth effect? So what we used to worry about was somebody, as they got older, entering into these later years, and especially their retirement years, uh, with some debt on their personal books. So the recommendation always was, if you're moving towards retirement, those last five years are really your launch pad into retirement, and you want to start organizing your finances in a way that you're not carrying any debt, you've got your mortgage paid off, that you're not taking on any pressure, uh, because in retirement, we don't know what will happen. The other types of things that we used to worry about with people as they got older was that there would be a change in health, um, that you may find yourself in a later year divorce, or you may find yourself caregiving for your older parent, and all of these can drain your finances as well. So that type of gray debt worried people as we started to look at how they'd move into retirement. But we've got a new phenomenon that's happening now, and it's, it's what I would refer to as this transgenerational look at debt, and it's something where older adults, so people who have children who are moving into their adult years or in their early adult years, um, are looking to help their children sort of jump into uh, a lifestyle that they feel is suitable for their children, and it's back to this fear of missing out. I hear more and more older adults say, I want to help my kid buy a house. 
In fact, I'm going to buy some real estate now with the intention that I know my kids won't be able to afford this in the future because of the escalation of real estate. So I'm going to have that house ready for them. And if it's a couple of kids, they can divide that up, but it gives them that jump start. We never saw that type of transgenerational look at debt before, and yet it's happening now day over with many, many people. It sure is. I hear that all the time amongst uh, my peers saying, you know, uh, you know, whoever son and daughter is, they can't afford to live in the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. So we've got to figure out a way to get them here or to support them. So now part of me thinks, oh, well, that's very kind and thoughtful. And and there's parents continuing to, to give and look after their kids. What's the downside of that? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think people aren't taking into consideration. So when we talk about this next generation coming into their adulthood, so these millennials born 1980 to 2000, it's a large group of young adults. But they're coming in with a whole different set of values than what the boomers, their parents had. They're coming in more flexible in how they handle life. They're looking for a work-life balance. They're looking for experiences. So the first comment I would make is be careful of putting your own boomer values onto the millennial generation, what you think they may want and the debt you may take on to make that happen may not be what they want in the end. The second caution I would have with that is when you start to buy things, this transgenerational purchasing, um, you're risking monetizing a relationship. The relationship within a family needs to be more at an emotional level. You don't want to be putting a dollar figure onto that. And so what that does create is the potential to have an insatiable relationship because dollar-wise, you'll never be able to satisfy someone's needs. They have to learn what their own needs are and how they're going to achieve them. That's a really hard thing, though, I think, for parents to even consider, the boomer parents to even sort of think about the ramifications of it. I mean, that's a, I mean, we've always looked after our kids. This is how we've done it. So we'll just continue to, to do it, right? I mean, that would take a real shift in thinking. Yeah, for some parents. And I think one way to do that is to consider, and it's, it's hard to do, but you may be 65 right now and healthy and active and independent. But let's face it, it does not continue that way. There are challenges that every one of us will face as we age. And those types of challenges require, require money to support you. And I think most of us want to remain independent as long as we can. And it's money that will help you do that. It'll help you buy different services that as your health changes, you can leverage those services to really keep the the type of lifestyle that you're able to enjoy independently. So think of yourself and try to picture yourself 20 years out as you're a much older adult. And in the end, that benefits your kids as well, because they're able to have their own independent lives, not worrying about the type of quality of life that you're experiencing. Leanne, great advice. For more information uh, from Leanne Davies, Dr. Leanne Davies, her website, agenomics.ca, founder and CEO of Agenomics, and uh, as well as a co-author of a book called When Life Bites You in the Wallet. The show is called Dollars and Cents, Sands and Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trust. Steve.com for more information.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.